It's Selection Sunday. Uh, welcome everyone back to the broadcast. I'm David Woods, Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and as you heard in our voiceover, it's Selection Sunday. It's actually the Monday after. Yeah, yeah, but don't worry about that. Uh, you know, I just, just wanted to make sure people didn't think you were high. Or yeah, 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 it's a good point. We recorded yeah. this at uh, 4 in the morning, um, Monday morning. Um, anyway, so I'm we David high. Woods. <laughs> Tracy Pearson joining me here at four in the morning over our uh, morning coffee in the blackness of the night. Because um, it's actually three in the morning in normal time, but we've we've jumped ahead an hour. So here we are. It's the middle of the night. Tracy, how are you? You've got me all like in a complete time warp because <laughs> I seriously don't even know what day or time it is because I believe everything you say. I know. I say it in a very, uh, in a very authoritative voice. I believe everything you say, Dave. Yeah, you should. So you should. I, I only speak the truth. You can wield. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. Everything I say is true. So, you want to talk football? I mean... No. <laughs> no. See? Everything I say is true. No, I do not want yeah. to talk about football. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about that That thing. The thing that happened yesterday, not today. Not First just off, several minutes you, ago. Let's just, at the start, do you consider that UCLA is in the NCAA tournament? Like, when you look so back. So, I, I, as a uh, intellectually honest purveyor of takes, uh, have to concede that I have recently made the argument, as recently as a couple of years ago, that the play-in game does not count as the official NCAA tournament. So, I will have to stick to my guns here and say no until UCLA actually beats Michigan State to enter the main 64-team draw. They have not made the NCAA tournament. See, I disagree. I, no matter, I mean, I, I get that reasoning, but I think whatever the tournament involves, that's the tournament. I mean, they just expanded it. They made it. So No, Steve Alford didn't thing. make the NCAA tournament, and UCLA has not yet. <laughs> that's what it is. It's no, if, if, if we made the take Steve at one time, Alford. if you make the take at one time for one guy, you got to make that's the true. same take for the next one. Right. And I'm the same saying. reason, but the same reason, and uh, maybe we'll get into this a little bit when we talk about the season, um, that's also the same reason that pandemic-related issues associated with this year's basketball team um, and, like, the offseason that's tough and you didn't get to work out and all that kind of stuff, I'm not using that at all when I talk about um, the relative success of this year's basketball team because we went into the Chip Kelly football season saying, hey, this is a real season no matter what. This was a real basketball season no matter what, too. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It, it, they're absolutely playing real games. <laughs> yes. They played real football games, no matter how Indeed. much some people wanted to convince us that these things were fake and yeah. they didn't really count. Yeah. But no, these, this all counts. Real yeah. season. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a tough – you are a bit of a bracketologist. No. Yes, you are. You're sure. very good at this stuff. You are, though. Okay. Um, uh, if UCLA, let's just let's just very simply, had not lost Oregon State, let's say Oregon State doesn't get into the tournament. What seed is UCLA? UCLA probably ends up as a safe eleven. Okay, so safe safe eleven. Don't have to play like one, yeah, one of the elevens that gets to play a six just right off the bat. I think the playing mm-hmm. game was because of losing to Oregon State. Okay, because uh, that also served to yeah. take a spot from an auto bid. So Oregon State ended up as the twelve. Um, playing against Tennessee, if Oregon State doesn't make it in, that moves everyone. Like So it moves one of these um, probably teams in off the bubble, maybe. But it also probably moves UCLA out of this situation. They might have ended up a lower seed. They might have ended up a 12. 
uh, but they would have been in the main draw. Those four losses, let's say they don't actually lose four. They, they win two, right? Mm-hmm. And this is really obviously very hypothetical. But, and then one, they get one win in the Pac-12 tournament. Where would they have been? So look at where all the Pac-12 teams landed. Because I, I think you were going to go there. Well, no, because yeah. I think uh, there is a situation where they may have ended up even higher than Colorado, but that was only if they did a clean sweep. If they swept through the last, uh, how many regular season games did they lose in a row? Was it three at the end, or was it four? I can't remember. Um, let's let's. If they let's no, no I'm not even being facetious. Was it three it at was, the end of the? Reg- it was Colorado, Colorado, Oregon, USC, and then Oregon State, right? Yes. If they'd swept those and won the Pac-12 tournament, I think they could have ended up as high as a hell, maybe a three. Um, because that would have been that would have been a lot of wins over um, some pretty good teams, um, yeah. and probably beating Oregon and Colorado again. Um, so splitting the difference, I think, looking at anywhere along the spectrum of where the Pac-12 teams landed is where they would have landed. So anywhere from if they'd done pretty well, like if they'd won the Pac-12 tournament and closed out the year winning like two or three or something like that, probably they get Colorado's five seed. Um, if they split to end the year something and then they made it to the semifinal or the final, then maybe they end up with USC's six seed. Um, I, th- I think so, there was a wide spectrum of possibilities for them based on how they closed, and they closed in the absolute worst way ma- uh, possible. So you are an absolute convert that that's the way this works. Um, the the slots kind of are are designated for conference teams. No, 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 no. I I think it's just the relative strength of the teams in the conference just work out that way. UCLA had the potential to go higher than Colorado did. It's just nobody in the league closed all that strong except Oregon State. If any of USC, Colorado, or Oregon had closed a lot stronger, meaning they'd actually won the Pac-12 tournament, or if USC hadn't um, completely screwed up its mountain trip and had a better Pac-12 tournament— they all could have gone as high as a three seed. Um, I think it's just, this was, I don't know if it was similar to all that much, the like Lonzo ball year, because none of the teams were as good, but it's just the top teams in the league kind of just beat up on each other um, and kind of, um, you know, knocked all of their seed rankings down a little bit. Um, But if one of them had been more dominant, they probably would have, you know, been able to get into the three or two range. I, I don't think they look at it based off of the conference at all, except in the sense that, you know, the teams you played impact, you know, how highly rated you are. You know, if you played some good teams and you beat them, then you're going to have a, you know, better chance of getting a high seed. Um, it's just the the Pac-12 teams, no no team was, was dominant. Okay, so that leads me into another, uh, I think, a pertinent question. Uh and I, I don't know what Rutgers's net is. I think it was like 38 or something. But Rutgers, there were plenty, I'm just saying Rutgers right now just to piss off Brian Doan. But um, there were plenty of teams that had worse records than UCLA that were clearly in, that felt very confident about being in, came from, uh, they had tougher, uh, they had stronger uh, schedule, tougher conferences. How do you feel about all those teams? Like, like let's say Rutgers. Well, see, I'm uh, my thinking on this is generally informed by like Ken Palm because um, I find okay. that being a more reasonable ranking of teams than basically anything else that um, gets pooped out. Okay. And Rutgers is ten spots higher in Ken Palm. They're the thirty fourth best team in the country. They should be safely in. Um, okay. UCLA 
should have been on the bubble. I thought they were very properly dealt with. Um, now, the the teams that weren't, that you could make an argument were uh, weird that they got in in this way. Uh, Missouri, uh, they were the 51st. Uh, VCU was a spot behind UCLA, and they were safely in at a 10. Um, Virginia Tech, did they win the ACC tournament? I don't even know. But they got uh, in at, at 50th. Yeah. Um, Michigan State is ranked 12 spots behind UCLA. Um, Louisville should have gotten in ahead of them if you're going by Ken Palm. Um, so they're, So why? Why has this happened, Dave? Uh, I mean, the, the vagaries. They're not just purely using Ken Palm to do this. I mean, why is Loyola Chicago an 8 seed when they're the number 9 team in Ken Palm? You know? Why is yeah. Wisconsin a 9 seed when they're the number 10 team in Ken Palm? Uh, because they're using other metrics, too, and they're using... Um, other ideas of, of, you know, where teams should be seated. And I would also note that this year, I think in particular, um, because it's squishy, because there's teams played a lot of varying schedules um, in terms of the number of games that were played, uh, I think they had to use a little bit more eye tests than they might have used normally. Um, but I would say Ken Palm, uh, his top 32 teams all made the tournament. This might be one of the first times that's happened, um, where basically every team in his top 30 or so actually made it, because a lot of times there's a big snub. So I think the the the, the field is getting a little bit more tied to what the analytics say. Um, Duke is actually the first team that he has uh, as a top 33 team. The 33rd ranked team in Ken Palm is the first one that's out, um, which is pretty good. Most years it's, it's much... Uh, uh, it's you'll see sprinkled in even in the teens a team that's out that should be in right it just seemed this year maybe because it was pandemic that um impacted it just there were so many teams i watched that i didn't i didn't necessarily think were very good and ultimately looking at their season ending records it kind of reflected that and over the last couple of days i've been hearing when i'm reading or watching ESPN or reading saying they're absolutely in. <laughs> well, well, why? And then I looked him up on Ken Palm and like you said, Virginia Tech. Uh, and I didn't, it was, I thought this was a little bit stranger this year. Than well, in- I think they, they had less respect for the PAC 12, I think than, um, so the, the general thinking on the PAC 12 this year is that it was the worst of the major conferences, but was better relative to the weaker conferences than it has been in a while. Um, so it's, it's kind of a nuanced take, but the PAC 12 inherently was better than it's been in a few years. Um, but still relative to the other major conferences, it was worse. So it kind of leaves it in this nuanced place where how are you taking the the different teams in there? How are you assessing them? And I think the committee, uh, maybe ranked them a little bit worse relative to their ranking in net, but I think ranked them eh, about what they should be according to Ken Palm. Um, so I don't know. I think they did an okay job. Um, I, I really don't have too many complaints. Um, I think UCLA was dealt with very fairly. Um, I think if you're, you know, Louisville or something, you might have an argument against. Um, but otherwise, I, I mean, I think they did a pretty good job. Um, all I think considered. UCLA was dealt. Yeah, I thought UCLA was dealt with fairly. I just thought some others were. Um... Like the scales, there was a finger on the scale for for some of them where it kind of didn't make sense. When I looked at the record, I watched them play, and I looked at Kempom saying, "Wow, don't get that!" While everyone's saying they're absolutely in, yeah. but you know, 
what can you do? Like uh, when you're watching the CBS selection show, the one game when they're going through it all, it's always fun to recognize the game that they come away saying, this is the upset special. And I swear to it's always against a Pac-12 team. <laughs> yeah, the, the Georgetown, year, Georgetown, Georgetown, Colorado. Over Colorado. As soon as they saw that, they jumped all over it. Yeah. Right? And that's that's a typical kind of game that they would, Georgetown, right in the heart of East Coast, Colorado, you know, not necessarily a high-profile Pac-12 team. I mean, that's that's just the... Well, when you're looking the, for it, you're generally up. looking for what? The 12 seed that shoots the three the best? And Georgetown yeah, shoots it pretty five. well. I mean, that's basically what it is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, the, but Georgetown, you know, I mean, I, they won their tournament, right? Didn't they? Yeah. You think so? Um, and they're a 12 seed. I mean, and it's right in line with probably where they should be um, if it was, like, ranked accordingly. Um, so, even them, I don't, you know, I mean, I, I think it was, I don't know, Colorado 5. I mean, USC maybe got jobbed a little bit. Um, as a six seed, um, if they were being like super uh, in line with like what the analytics say, US- USC probably should have been a four. Um, but no, otherwise, I thought it was pretty fair. The other thing I like looking at are the teams that you don't remember having been in the tournament, like maybe in your lifetime. Um, Abilene Christian, and I'm just saying this, I have not looked this up. When's the last time Abilene Christian? Mm. was in the NCAA tournament. Uh, looks like 2019. 2019, a, they were in as a 15 okay, seed. I'm, I'm high. Yeah, um, under the yeah. great Joe Golding. Wow, this guy. He's 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 getting it done at Abilene Christian. Yeah, he sure as hell is. Uh, what's Abilene, ooh, what's Abilene ooh, Christian? Ooh, what's ooh, their, ooh, what? ooh, Tracy, hold. Yes, stop yes, the presses. Yes. yes. Grand Canyon made the NCAA tournament. I knew that. <laughs> future future UCLA head coach Bryce Drew made the NCAA tournament. Oh, what a rebound boy. after going 0 and 18 at Vanderbilt two years ago, then making oh. the NCAA tournament Grand Canyon. There's a certain poster on our board who thinks he's he. Well, he's feeling very vindicated. I'm right? sure he is. I'm sure he is. Yeah. That's the first uh, trip to the NCAA tournament for Grand Canyon at least since 2014, which may have been yeah. the uh, first year of Grand Canyon. No. I don't know. Grand, Grand Canyon's been around a long time. Have they been eligible for the NCAA tournament? No, but they've been around a long time. Yeah. Um, I don't think they were D1. I, yeah. This yeah, is this funny. Is, Bryce, Bryce Drew, baby. Bryce Drew. start talking. But, yeah, no, they haven't been D1 for a long time. Yeah, no. Uh, the great Bryce Drew. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's some fun. This is always, to me, this is, besides UCLA, this is always by far the most fun are just the complete Cinderella's that, you know, have a chance to actually upset someone or the fact that they just made the tournament. I well, mean, he's, I mean, he's got to be the best coach left in the tournament, right? 68 teams, Bryce Drew. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there's someone who's thinking that right now. Yeah. Um, so UCLA's matchup. Have you seen Michigan state play this year? They're bad. That's my nuanced they're, take. They're they, the worst. They really they're the worst. They're the, the worst Michigan State team I think Tom Izzo's had. Um, yeah, it was when I, I watched them like game and a half. It, it like you you literally had to rub your eyes and say, 
Is this Michigan State? I, I mean, a couple of times. Um, they do. They do play like you know, physical, like Tom Izzo's teams are. They they like to beat the crap out of you. Mm-hmm. But that's all they are. They're kind of just thugs in a good way. But then there's not really a lot of basketball skill going on there beyond that. So. Yeah, yeah. They, they can't shoot at all. Um, no. They're a really brutal offensive team. Um, defensively. Then beat, yeah, then they beat Michigan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, like, even, I mean, it's not even, I mean, from, like, a big physical Michigan State, you're thinking they rebound well. They don't. Like, they rebound okay. But they're not, like, one of those elite rebounding teams. Uh, basically, what they do is they protect the rim on defense. So, I think Cody Riley will have a tough time scoring against them. UCO is going to need good perimeter play, but if they can get it, um, like if this is a, this would be a great game for Johnny Juzang to actually shoot the ball pretty well. Um, <laughs> if he does, then I think they, they should win this game. I mean, Michigan state is not very good. It depends on how much they've kind of, you know, I don't know. And I doubt they have, but it depends on how much the last four games have kind of taken the wind out of their sails and they've packed it in. Um, but uh, Michigan State, very beatable. Um, this is a team that is, I mean, where's Oregon State? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see how they can, their comp to Oregon State in, uh, like, analytics. Uh, okay, so Oregon State's considerably worse, and they just lost Oregon State, so that's one uh, data point. But this is a team that is much, much worse than... Oregon, USC, and Colorado, all of which the UCLA played with and should have or could have beaten. So, um, yeah, no, UCLA, if, uh, and even this limited version of UCLA without Chris Smith and Jalen Hill, um, this this is a very winnable game. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, you, I, you immediately saw that, and I think uh, a lot of people reacted, oh, wow, damn, that's a loss. And that's a tough matchup, and it could be. I mean, I, I really got to break down like you know the literal matchups. But you know what? There there are some teams out there, some mid majors that I've I've watched some of these tournaments that are kind of scary. I, I mean, I, I like you look at them and go, "Crap, man, that team can shoot the crap out of it." And I don't know. I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of okay with this. I, I'm on. I'm I'm with you. I think UCLA. I think UCLA should win this game. Yeah, well, so I'm looking at their roster right now, and their starting lineup, their tallest guy is 6'9", and he goes 220. Um, I'm revising my opinion. Cody Riley might be able to bang with these dudes. It's just they block shots pretty well. Um, So I'm guessing it's a lot of 6'6 to 6'9 kind of athletic types. I've I've caught, like, a little bit of Michigan State this year. I haven't really watched a ton. I'm going based on, like, what they've actually done. Um, They really shoot the ball poorly. Um, and they shoot the ball. The thing is, they shoot a 30, lot of... 32% from three. And it's not like they've like skimped on shooting them. Like, they've got two guys. They've got two dudes, uh, Aaron Henry and Rocket Watts, who have each shot 78 or more at sub 229% from three, each of them. The Rocket Watts is 25.9% from three. He's 21 of 81. Like, what are you doing shooting those, buddy? Yeah, I mean it's green light time. Yeah, you know? but so I mean I think it's, it's the whole team shooting thirty two, so that's not that bad. Yeah, they've got <laughs> they've got looks like one shooter, uh, Gabe Brown, forty three percent, and then the rest of them are, yeah. There's not another guy who's a major rotation player who's shooting over thirty three percent. So yeah, 
Um, UCLA, I mean, defensively against this team, the, you know, kind of, I think one of the major weaknesses for this UCLA team has been, you know, allowing too many threes and allowing some open threes at times. Um, uh, you know, it could happen. It could burn them, you know, anybody who's a D one player can, uh, you know, occasionally just take and make wide open threes. But I don't know, as far as a matchup against which, you know, UCLA's defense might be okay. I think this one might be it. Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't think anyone should should really just throw this out thinking, wow, big, bad Michigan State. Um, yeah. So uh, I think it's winnable. I do. Um, and you're right. The way the, def- the way the defense is designed, at least right now, you know, it's the pack line defense where you kind of collapse. And if you get a team that can shoot threes – and it, it, UCLA is going to be vulnerable. I mean, so as, like you said, Michigan State could get hot. But you, from that standpoint, you like this matchup. Yeah, um, I, I think this one, as far as that goes, um, you know, UCLA's defense is probably better. I mean, it's relative. UCLA's defense is no great shakes, but it's probably better um, on the inside than on the out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I like the matchup. I think if UCLA is committed and focused and uh, brings the effort and uh, can sustain it, you know, that's the key thing. Um, this is a winnable game, totally. Okay, let's let's say, let's just, I mean, since we're here, <laughs> they get past Georgetown and they have to play Florida State. Oh, it's BYU, is he... isn't it? Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, sh- sorry, I was looking at Colorado-Georgetown. I'm high. You're high. Um, I'm high. All right, so after this, it's BYU. I Uh, have watched BYU play a few times. Have you watched them? Yeah, a little bit. They, like many many BYU teams, they shoot the shit out of it. Dang. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I watched them that one game. They were up on Gonzaga, like, by double digits, if if I tend to remember. And then they collapsed. But... That's a scary team to me. Like, that would be a team that I, I think would be a tough matchup. That would be a real tough out. Um, they played. I mean, they played Gonzaga close. Um, yeah, several times actually. Um, yeah. yeah, no, they they shoot the ball really, really well um, from all levels. Uh, they're the thirty fifth best team shooting the three in the country. The twenty seventh best in, from the inside, um, and uh, they defend really well too. Um, so that I, <laughs> the road ends there. Um, if they do make well, the, uh, not, come on now. Come that's on. a tough, that's a tough one because, um, as we just got finished saying, um, UCLA's deficiency, um, is probably allowing too many threes and allowing teams that are good from three to make too many. Um, and that team is good from three. Um, and they also have, uh, they've got that giant inside, right? That, um, what's his name? Um, let me look it up. Matt Harms, that seven yeah. three behemoth. He's like yeah. seven three two fifty. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's that's a tough look. Like imagine the lineup uh, with well, actually the funnier lineup is the one with Cody Riley because um, I think Jalen Clark, you know, he, he might front him and do some things. Uh, but Cody Riley, <laughs> I mean, Cody Riley's given up. What do we think Cody Riley actually is? Six seven. He's six. So he's six eight. Six eight. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Six, seven and a half, six, eight. <laughs> Just giving up like seven inches to this dude and also like not having the verticality to really deal with that either. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, that's that's a bad uh, I, I really look forward to Jalen Clark playing, matching up against that guy. That would be fun. That would be fun. But that's that yeah. would be a very tough matchup. Um, so Let's I think, see, okay. So what you're saying is they get past BYU, yeah. and then it's Abilene Christian. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm sorry. It would be Texas. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, Texas, have you seen them? Let's just let's just go to that. Let's just do Sweet Sixteen. Have you so seen Texas? Texas, they kind of fell apart a little bit because they were doing really really well at the beginning of the year, um, and then they tanked um, in Dude. in Big Twelve play. They won the tournament though. Yeah, but they tanked in Big Twelve play because they were one of I don't know. I want to say they were top five um, in Ken Palm in early January, and then it just kind of. Fell I watched apart. them in their tournament. They were pretty good. Yeah, uh, they 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 put it together for that tournament. Um, that would also that would be tough. They've got some skilled athletic guys. Um, so, in other words, this is this is a tough <laughs> this is a tough path for this UCLA team. Uh, Mick Cronin made the point that getting bumped early, they have more rest, but so does Michigan State. Um, yeah, I, I mean, right, I have to admit, my expectation right now, and I think it's reasonable given the season and the team, I think it would be highly disappointing if they lost to Michigan State. Uh, I, think that, I think they need that win. Uh, here's what I'll say. Okay. I don't think I'll be in position a week from now to continue making the tortured thing about, well, I said Steve Walford didn't make the NCAA tournament, so i got to say Mick Cronin did. Um, I think he will make the NCAA tournament, meaning okay. I think they will beat Michigan State and he will be in the 64-team field. And I think the road ends there. Um, yeah. But I think uh, given the parameters of the season, um, given everything that went into it, what I would have guessed, if you told me in early January, hey, not only is Chris Smith gone, but Jalen Hill is going to be gone within the month, I would have said, okay, they probably still make the NCAA tournament as like an eight or a nine seed. So instead, they will have made it as an 11 seed. and But my expectations wouldn't have been different for the result. 8-9 seed, well, it's a crapshoot whether you win that first game or not. Um, so, You know what? I, I would have... Okay, so not given... This is before the season. If you told me you're losing Chris Smith and Jalen Hill, right? Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm... My impression is the Chris Smith and the Jalen Hill I saw at the end of last season... I would say without those two guys that this team wouldn't make the tournament. That would have been my expectation. Jalen Hill at last year, and you're a big Jalen Hill um, proponent. Uh, the Jalen Hill last year playing on this year's team. <laughs> well, no. All right, so let's would, go back because actually what I was saying okay. was early January. But if you go back to early January, okay. that UCLA team had no good wins and was 6-2, and 2-0. Two, two and oh. And that was with Jalen Hill and Chris Smith. And if you told me Jalen Hill was going to be gone by the end of the month, too, I would have said they missed the NCAA tournament. What they had was that period from Utah on December 31st to Cal on January 21st, where they played really friggin' well with Jalen Hill and without Chris Smith. Right. Where they went 12 and 2, 8 0 in conference. Right. A little lucky, but yeah, they played well. A little lucky, but I mean, they beat Colorado. Um, Yeah. You know, I mean, they had some good wins, and they were playing pretty well. I mean, they blew out yeah. Washington State. Um, yeah. So, I, yeah, I mean, it would have been a different story. I think if at the end of January, I would have been very disappointed if they had missed the NCAA tournament. Um, because so here's here's the thing: 
then. Let's take a little bigger picture. I mean, there are a lot of people. And, you know, it's funny because fans, fan sentiment really rides with, like, how you've done lately. Uh, team loses a couple of games, you know, the world's coming to an end. They win a couple of games. Wow, this is the program's great. It's it's on the right track. Uh, so we've been hearing this a lot about Mick Cronin from the fans on the forum. Um, it was very funny. Did you see John Wilner's little comment from our tweet? What that UCLA fans are crazy, basically. He called them morons. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I think the tweet, it was the story I wrote about. You know, fans were questioning Mick Cronin's coaching chops. And he said, yeah, what fans? They must be morons. Um, but, you know, it's it's the nature of being a fan. There's some kind of chemical that rushes through your brain that suddenly, you know, the world's coming to an end when there's a few losses and you can't see the bigger picture. And even the other way, when you get a couple of wins, you get kind of jacked up and you don't see the bigger picture. Um I'm still, I mean, I want to go through this with you because I want to be balanced here and talk about Mick Cronin's program and, and point out some of the things that we could be critical of. Um, well, and that's that's the thing I want to, uh, just generally speaking, a lot of the stupid conversation on the boards is making it difficult to have the conversation about the things that are actually worth thinking about critically. Like yes. there are parts of this that I think um, Aaron brought it up, uh, Aaron 1050 on the board, and it's something I've been banging the drum on. So maybe it's just a little pet project of mine. But I think the argument of, OK, back in December when this was a full roster, why was Cody Riley playing over Jalen Hill? You know, yeah. what was the Johnny Jews and green light? Is that a sign of things to come? Was that a choice for this year? What is that? Those are conversations that are worth having. Conversation of, oh man, they should never be an 11 seed in year two with a head coach or whatever. That's just stupid. It's just a, yeah, it's a dumb conversation. Um, it's funny that you're giving Aaron credit for that because, I, I mean, I'm not taking credit away from him, but you were banging that drum. I just, it's, yeah, but it's, the, it's, the, it's just on the board. But um, yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a drum I've been banging literally since he came back healthy, Jalen Hill. But that's because I'm Jalen Hill's agent. Um, you so know, as, as I've disclosed because, on here, because Mick Cronin kind of alluded to it, and I can't remember verbatim, but in one of the most recent interviews, he said he pretty much said I I opted to try to I made the decision that the way I was going to win with this team was to was with offense that yeah. we only had so much ceiling defensively, and I was going to try to squeeze as much out of it as I can, but the way to win was with offense. So if that's can now is he is that he's like just kind of changing the narrative from the earlier because he's looking back and saying, you know, that's what I did when no, he so made that decision to the, go. I've with thought Cody about Riley. that. I've thought about it a little bit. I think this can happen. So he was how many years was he at Cincinnati? Sixteen. Yeah, something like that. Thirteen, sixteen, something like that. Um when you're at a, a place for that long, you've established a culture and the whole thing. You can get nuanced with what you're doing year to year. Like, oh yes. man, we've got a few offensive players this year. Let's emphasize that a little bit more. Let's let's put the ball in his hands and do this thing because the culture is there. Like it's built, it's structured, it's all there. 
Trying to do that in year two, when I would say the culture is still fledgling, uh, when it's still kind of, you know, fragile. Um, I, I think that that's the kind of thing where I think you could argue there was a little bit of a misstep here. Because, because now you're saying the lost identity. Well, a little bit. That, and that's I wrote it in the last recap, the final question for me coming out of um, that game. And thankfully, not the last game of the season. But um, what because I don't think his intention is to shift the identity. But the thing is, we have two years of data points. And in this year, um, well, just I mean, look at a few different guys. You've got um, Jalen Hill. Who, okay, yeah, there's the personal stuff, which I don't even really want to get into. I'm saying on the court in December, he was a superior player to uh, Cody Riley. In in particular, in the ways that Mick Cronin has, you know, placed a lot of value in the past. Offensive yeah. rebounding, um, yeah. creating free throws, defense. Like all those things, he was a superior player and he wasn't playing over him. Uh, Cody Riley, if anything, was playing more minutes than Jalen Hill. Um, then you also had Johnny Juzang, who I think improved as a defensive player. I think he was better in February and January than he was in December um, when he came in. But um, when he came in and then for much of January, he was a bad defensive player. Um, and there have been periods of very bad recently. He was pulled. I mean, look, you can make whatever you argument for, you want for how he, why he was pulled in the Pac-12 tournament. But it was whether it was because he was playing poor defense because of his ankle or just because he was playing poor defense, it was because he was playing poor defense. If, if, if you've ever sat with an ankle injury for a long period of time, you don't get them put in for all five minutes of overtime like that. It's, it wasn't the ankle. It was the defense anyway. Um, but that happened intermittently, even over the last few weeks of the season. Okay. You've got a guy, David Singleton, who started for you at the end of last year. And I'm not saying that I think David Singleton is a superior NBA prospect or even a superior player to Johnny Juzang, but does he do the few things that Mick Cronin values significantly or what he valued at Cincinnati better than Juzang? He plays more defense for sure. Uh, takes care of the ball, I think, similarly. Um, his turnover rate ended up less than Juzang. Um, not as gifted an offensive player for sure, um, but clear em emphasis was on playing Juzang, especially once he was, yeah, I mean, obviously once he was available. Uh, and then you have um, the case of Jalen Clark, who, again, a lot of errors, a lot of issues, but he does two things that, again, Mick Cronin has really, really valued in the past. He is, I think, the best offensive rebounder on the team. Um, and that's just natural. Like, you just watch him, and I, I think it should be obvious to everybody, he's the best. And I, I don't even think it's close. And I don't even think it's close with him and Jalen Hill. I think Jalen Clark is the best. Um, and he plays defense. Uh, definitely some mix-ups, and he can lose, you know, when he's off the ball, he can lose it a little bit. But um, still probably the best defender on the team without Jalen Hill when he's, you know, uh, out there. And he wasn't playing very much until the last month of the season. So I I think, and maybe this is just kind of a different um, thought about the whole thing, um, even if it might have lopped a little bit off of the potential for this year's team, I think establishing a culture in your second year is still a huge part of what you're doing. Um, and I don't, and the thing is, I don't even know if you would have lopped upside off of it. Um, but I think it's so important to establish what your team and program is going to be about, especially in a year, you know, because last year wasn't a finished year. It wasn't a complete year. This is still kind of like, in this weird position because you didn't get a tournament last year. Um, I, I think you still needed to emphasize those things. Um, 
and and make those kind of the focus and the thing that you're hanging the hanging your hat on. And I think it got lost a little. I don't think it got lost totally, but I think it got lost a little. And I think that's why you saw um, there was no surge like last year in terms of and not in terms of timing, but in terms of the way they were winning. Uh, when they were winning this year for that period, it wasn't with defense. Um, and I think last year when they had that big surge in February, it was largely with, you know, increased um, and better uh, defensive play. And that's more about commitment and buy-in and effort than it is about, you know, having, you know, huge and incredible athletes. So uh, all of this is is really, really interesting. And, and I don't think there's any right answer. Uh, I think there's a lot of nuance in all of this to consider. And I, I think it's unfair really to judge the coaching in this year either way because there first there's a lot we don't know and secondly it's it's really nuanced there's just like let's just take Jalen Hill and I can add a little bit of what I know um so uh, first off let's just Jalen Hill they started the season and Cody Riley was the starter that was different than last season uh Jalen Hill was the starter Cody Riley came in after five minutes um so you're thinking, wow, that that is a choice by Mick Cronin uh, to maybe emphasize his offense rather than his defense. But now I I know um, from what I've learned, Cody uh, Jalen Hill wasn't entirely engaged coming into the season. Uh, Cody Riley was. Um, and I'm not saying it's right. I have no idea. I'm just saying these are the nuances that you're dealing with as a coach. If through practice, Cody Riley is is asserting himself, playing hard, working hard, and there's some weakness that you perceive from Jalen Hill. It's hard to... I don't want to get into too many details, but let's just say they could maybe have seen some of this coming. Don't forget, we're in the middle of a pandemic. These kids are isolated. It's a hard, it's a hard time to get through emotionally and mentally. Yeah. Um, so when, when Mick Cronin decided to, like what he said in that interview, he decided to emphasize offense, and he thought that was his best chance to win this year. Um, and when that actually happened, and it wasn't probably a switch where he decided I'm switching now. I think it was a cumulative thing that Jalen Hill wasn't entirely engaged from the outset. Uh, Chris Smith, losing Chris Smith. Um, so there's you lose Chris Smith and you, you don't have an engaged Jalen Hill, and then you lose Jalen Hill. Uh, at that point, you're thinking... What do I? What are my best chances of winning here? Um, and that's a tough decision to make. From that outset, from that point on, what would have been his best chance to win? And coaches, where you are drawing, uh, and, and I think it's I think it's uh, valid to try to put a spotlight on it. That he, that Mick Cronin to maintain and sustain the identity he's trying to establish at UCLA should have kept with the defensive emphasis 
and he shifted away from that. The way coaches almost always think is whatever they can do to win the most. That is always their mind. Every coach I've ever known is what I can do to win the most. I'm going to do any last thing I can to win that game. Yeah, and um, I guess I guess my point is I, I think it, it the answer is one and the same because I think the issue is, and this is where um, you know we've talked about it on the show back when Jalen Hill was still a, a going part of the team. Um, he's just the superior player to Cody Riley, and that's just the 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 simple fact of the matter. And he also impacts things in a way that Cody Riley cannot defensively. Um, changes entirely what UCLA can do defensively, not only with his switching and all that, you know, storied play, doing all that stuff, but even just being a pretty good rim protector. Not great. He's not wonderful. He's not, you know, blocking everything, but he's still the best on the team by a wide margin. Um, and even having a, whatever we want to call him, a slightly disengaged Jalen Hill in December was way better than what Cody Riley was bringing to the floor. And the thing is, the same choice was made last year, too. If we remember the beginning of last year, Cody Riley was the primary um, at the five, and they were playing twin posts for a while in 2019. Um, but when it was single post, it was Cody Riley. And then that shifted in January, mid-January, and Jalen Hill took over. And that, I, I don't think it was a, it wasn't a coincidence that that's also when the team started to play a lot better. Um, and I think, you know, there was the other thing, which was getting Prince Ali out of the lineup and getting David Singleton in, but a big part of it was getting Jalen Hill in there as the primary five and playing four out one in. Um, and I think that just simply put, I think it was, I think even if you are basing it off of practice engagement or, you know, all that different stuff, um, Jalen Hill was a better player on the floor, um, than Cody Riley this year. Okay. Then here's the other thing too. Uh, here's the other decision. To be made, and you and I have talked a lot about this outside of our podcast. And of course, I'm not going to open up this whole can. But when you're talking about Johnny Juzang, there's one element uh, you can talk endlessly about pros and cons. But when you're on a basketball team, there is the feeling among the players that that are on the court, um, and there's. It's just not a chemistry. It, it literally is. Uh, it's there's kind of a it's kind of a wolf pack. Yeah. It's like who plays what role, and throwing one guy in, who becomes the alpha male, changes a lot of the other roles of the guys on the team. Even if they're not even necessarily acknowledging it, you could probably, you know, interview Jaime and he would say. I, I, you know, I, no, I, I just go out every game and try to play as hard as I can. But there's still an impact. There's still an effect. And I, that was another thing. I, I'm not arguing against playing Johnny Juzang, how much he played him, and and the downside of his defense. Um, but it it changes it changes the overall and can, for lack of a better word. Uh, maybe the dynamic of the team. And we saw it with Singleton, David Singleton. You could watch games and say, uh, is he really doing much? Right. Is he actually, uh, obviously he's not, he's not, a, <laughs> he, he's not affecting the stat sheet much, but when you watch the game, he's doing some things, but you say, is he really doing that much? But there was something about what he brought to the team from a dynamic that made that team so much better last year. Yeah, and 
that's a really tough thing to balance and and deal with. So this year was full of those little things. I think it me. was so, and that's the thing is I don't I don't want to turn this into a Mick bashing session because it's not. This I think was a really challenging roster to figure out yes, because very much. I, right. I don't think you have that like just. Not even flawless. I'm not even looking for that. But just like that guy who's all around good at a lot of different things. And even the Chris Smith who you might have thought was going to fill that role. He was not the same Chris Smith in December. Now, did did the lineup adjustments, the fact that they didn't have Jalen Hill and Johnny Juzang to start the year. And they were anticipating having them. Um, and then the fact that Cody Riley was playing over uh, Jalen Hill. And the fact that Johnny Juzang was playing over David Singleton. Did that have an impact on Chris Smith? I have no idea. No idea. But he wasn't that guy. But if you look at everyone else on the roster, they all have inherent flaws. But that makes constructing who they're playing alongside, how they're playing, all that stuff much, much, much more important. Um, You know, fitting in, how does David Singleton fit with these four guys on the floor? Um, How does Johnny Juzang fit when he's playing alongside Jules Bernard and Jaime Jaquez? I mean, that's going to be tough because those three guys, I mean... If you're wondering why, you know, Hawkes got kind of short shrift offensively for a large portion of this year, um, I mean, a lot of his spots were occupied because they're all three kind of, you know, perimeter-esque players who have to get their stuff off the drive. Um, and increasingly over the last few games, especially Johnny Juzang was taking those because he was driving a lot more. Um, I think what you said that this was a really challenging year given given the players he had to work with and their flaws and their holes in their games. And the choices he made are, are not, uh, I, I don't think they can really be condemned in any way. Could you maybe criticize them? But man, those are hard decisions. Given all of this yeah. dynamic and all of these players with how many flaws they have, and I'll tell you this. But I that's mean, why I would make it easier Jaylen, on myself and just play the defenders. Like play the guys who okay, are the best at the defense. Thing, here's the thing. I think we're elevating Jalen Clark. I think Jalen Clark's going to be a great player at UCLA. He flashed some defensive capability, just his athleticism, ability to move his feet, his ability to anticipate shot, everything. But if you really watched it, he made a lot of mistakes. Oh, yeah. And especially, made, I mean, against Oregon so, State, he gave up three open threes. Wow. A lot of times, even though he flashed the feet, and all, there were a lot of times where he was a liability defensively. So there's there's like no clear guy. <laughs> That, you know, even if, let's say you're going to make this a, you're going to stick to your defensive emphasis, with whom? With whom? As soon as you lose Chris Smith and Jalen Hill, with whom? Uh, how are you emphasizing defense with this team? I, I, it's just, I'm, I'm not saying there wasn't an answer, but it's, it's tough. I, I don't know, I don't know that there are any answers out of some of the challenges that Cronin had to work with this season. Yeah. The long, I think the, the long run here is you've got to get some talent in here. And, and he's doing that. Um, I'm making this little slight transition unless you want anything else to say about this year's team. Um, no, God, no. <laughs> so, so we're moving on to how do you improve the talent level? Um, He's recruiting, I'd say, well, but not flawlessly. Um, coming in next, I'm I'm good with Mac Etienne. I'm good with Jalen Clark. I think they're going to be good, strong, at least three to four year. I'm very. Of ex- I should say I'm very excited about Mac Etienne. Yes, uh, watching so him in the last game, he's he's a lot more polished offensively than I think either of us thought he was going to be. 
Um, By far. There's a lot to like there. Yes. Uh, People on the forum were yesterday on Saturday. We're on Sunday. Sorry. We're making a, a... we're emphasizing about how Mick Cronin screwed up point guard recruiting for. Uh, yeah, this is one of the things I'm talking about. This is a stupid criticism, okay? Yes, but let's All right, just, don't let's do the stupid criticism, so it'll allow us to do the smart criticisms. Thank you. Because I'm not going to say stupid, but I would say that the the questionable criticism is trying to second guess that he should have brought in an impact point guard in. The 2020 class, when Dacian Nix was committed to you, signed a letter of intent, and then decided to go to the G League, and we've discussed it at length on the on the forum. And I, I mean, I don't know if I want to get into it, but there was there was no way to anticipate this. There was no way. The other guys who went in the G League didn't sign their letter of intent. Daisha Nix was telling UCLA that he was not going to the G League. The G League wasn't even a thing. They weren't even sure. And it only friggin' happened because of the pandemic, right? And it happened because of the pandemic. Exactly. Um, And uh, mostly because remember all those, remember those times when you weren't sure if there was going to be a college basketball season and this guy could go make $500,000 while he wasn't sure there would be a college basketball season. So, there were plenty of things that committed, but just let's just say that they could have anticipated that they had a crystal ball. Who would they have gotten? <laughs> Dacian Nick signs in November. There's no chance he's going to the G League. This doesn't even happen. This not even a valid thing to think about until maybe March when the pandemic starts to hit. So at that point, UCLA is supposed to be recruiting a point guard. There are no point guards that are UCLA level, and there are no UCLA backup point guard level guys. That there, there's no point guards to be gotten. After the year, if you remember, and I thought I, I laid it out pretty well, they looked around and tried to find one in the transfer portal. They vetted a few guys, and I can safely say from what I know, it didn't work out. There were some guys who didn't qualify for UCLA academically, and there were some guys who just from a character standpoint, absolutely didn't vet out. Um, There was nothing else for them to do at that point. Here's the thing, though, a slight pivot. I I would say if I were going to be critical about their recruiting, I would have thought that they should have found a point guard in the 2021 class. Um, They only offered three, and to give them a little bit of an excuse, of course it was pandemic-impacted. They weren't able to go out and see anyone. They're, all the evaluation periods were killed. They couldn't even see a guy like K.J. Simpson, um, who was a guy, obviously, I've been uh, promoting, who signed with Arizona. You're his uh, agent. Which, Yeah, let's say that. Um, they couldn't even go out to see him. And, if, and I'm pretty confident if they had gone out to be able to see him in his high school season, I think – you know, I think things would have changed. Um, and then seeing him in spring, I, things would have changed for me, for him, uh, for UCLA in potentially offering him. And the timing is really hard to work out also. So, but I think they're even giving him that kind of an excuse. I, I, if there was a year that maybe you should have taken a little bit of a risk, 
And after you saw Tiger Campbell, Tiger Campbell's limitations in that first year, Daisha next isn't coming in. You are going to be left with one point guard for multiple years, and that's Tiger Campbell. I think maybe this was a year 2021 recruiting class when you actually took a flyer on someone, meaning take a chance with someone who you normally wouldn't take and you would want to see more of, but take a chance because you need that addition to your 2021 team. You need a backup point guard. Um, I think that's a valid criticism. They only offered three guys. They never really had a chance with any of the three in the last, uh, last week, a few days ago, they offered this guy, Ty Ty Washington, who decommitted from Creighton, who's a top 30 national recruit who, um, I mean, just to say it, I mean, there are uh, some, uh, there were some red flags in his recruitment. I guess he's cleaned them up. Uh, obviously, everyone feels they're, they're cleaned up because now everyone is offering him. Um, I'm hearing he's a, long, he's a long shot, even though things could change. But uh, what I had heard was that people were expecting him to commit to Kansas. So going into now where we are in the spring and summer, it's all about a transfer point guard. Yeah. And I, I, do... I think that, that they they need to bring in someone who can contribute next year. It's a it's a very high priority. Don't fault them for twenty twenty after Dacian next. Fault them slightly for twenty twenty one, but now this we're getting around to the point where we've given them a pass for the talent they were they were handed, they inherited, they didn't run them off, they did the classy thing. But now with the transfer portal, I they need to have talent they can win with at a high level next year. Yeah, and everything you said is true and valid. I do want to make an epistemological note, which is uh, the criticism that Tracy is leveling here um, about the 2021 point guard recruiting and the criticism I leveled about Jalen Hill and the defensive emphasis and all that thing. The difference between that and the dumb arguments is that <laughs> these were knowable at the time. These were things we thought at the time. And in fact— yeah. In these cases, we wrote them at the time. These were things that were knowable at the time. The Dacian Knicks thing was not knowable at the time. Many factors played into that. So, no, that's 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 one of the dummy ones. Um, but 2021, I mean, Tracy was writing about K.J. Simpson, I mean, what, eight months ago? Uh, before, before he verbally committed to, yeah, it, to it, Arizona. It, while he was oh, yeah. still a recruitable athlete. Um, yes. So... This is all stuff that, yeah, okay. These these are the these are something that you could make a, a legitimate critique about. Um, there are things that are legitimate, things that are illegitimate. Uh, all of that is legitimate. Um, the thing I would say, and the thing that kind of gets me, I won't say defensive in the talent arguments because I do generally agree. But the the thing is, and I want to go back to this just generally is we we all watched the end of last year and the way the team coalesced and i don't think you could make a valid talent argument against that full complete team because they were playing well as a group and it was playing as if it was a top 20 top 15 group um i think that the coaching staff themselves could have gotten convinced a little bit because tiger campbell for all his inability and here's the thing one thing i do want to note about tiger campbell because i think he gets knocked wildly unfairly on our message board um, yes. all the time. But yes. one thing I want to know is what was the one big critique last year with Tiger Campbell? It was not his outside shooting. If you remember, it was his inability to finish around the rim. He was just unable to do it at all. Like 
could not. I think he was hitting like nothing on those. And then in the offseason, I don't remember this floater game and this mid-range game, but suddenly he can hit those at like a 45% plus clip. That dude worked yeah. in the offseason and developed that. I'm not putting it past him that he's going to develop a three-point shot. But beyond that, if there's one guy on this team who was hurt by not having Jalen Hill, and I don't mean to keep banging this drum, but if no. there's one guy on this team who's really hurt by that, it's Tiger Campbell. Because first, um, his sometimes issues with staying in front of ball, uh, ball handlers are solved to an extent by not only having a guy behind him who can rim protect, but also having a guy who can pick him up off screens. Um, Jalen Hill can do that. Cody Riley really can't. Second, um, on those pick and rolls where you're seeing him not throw the ball to Mac Etienne, am, am I having fever dreams of all the times that he's thrown lobs to Jalen Hill? Because those happen all the time. Um, I just don't think he trusts Mac Etienne to catch the ball, which I think is fair. Like, I think that's justifiable. Yeah. So yeah. I think a lot of the critiques of Tiger Campbell are critiques of this roster, not necessarily Tiger Campbell himself. Does he have deficiencies as a player? Yes. Is he your ideal starting point guard on a Final Four team? Maybe not. Um, is he more than capable of being the point guard on a Pac-12 winning team and a high seed in the NCAA tournament? Yeah. Hell yeah, hell yeah because he was, if, if that team last year had come into this year the same way, um, that they ended last year, that's exactly what they would have been. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't love the Tiger Campbell criticism because I think, and I think that's part of what the coaching staff was probably thinking is, hey, this dude, if we figure a couple things out, we can make him workable until we get our next elite point guard. Absolutely. Um, that's a huge point right there. Given the personnel they had on the team, that's, I'm absolutely certain that's what they thought. Yeah. And now they didn't have that one key element, which is Jalen Hill. But, and I think your argument is completely valid, which is how much would even this team have been improved by having a secondary ball handler who can actually come in and run the point? Because Jules Bernard, say, God love him, uh, he's not a point guard, um, as we saw in that, that final play against Oregon State. What I would have said is to have someone who can who can really effectively guard the opposing one. Now, Tiger Campbell is criticized so much for his defense, and Tiger Campbell generally is able to stay in front of people. The problem is that they're so much bigger, they can get shots off better over Tiger than they could over someone who's 6'1 and can stay in front of them. Yeah. So he's not a horrible defender. He's just like, it's not like we've seen some guys in the past that just get blown by and they sit there and wave at him as they're going by. I mean, he's the, the Bryce Alford. Uh, yeah, you got to say that. And then, um, no, just when they move in to like within 15 feet and he has shut them down, they're able to get that shot off because he's five. Nine. Um, so what I would have liked to have seen is a point guard who can defend the position. So uh, Tiger's been playing, you know, what, 33 minutes. Uh, he averages like 30, but a lot of times he plays over 30. It would have been great. If he, instead of everyone else who has tried to be the backup point guard, you had a legitimate point guard who could guard the one for, let's say, 15 minutes a game, 13 minutes a game, and really create havoc for that point guard for that 13 to 15 minutes. He comes off the bench, he's fresh, and he's driving that other point guard crazy. That little bit right there is probably good for a couple of stops a game, and those couple of stops are huge. 
And they relieve so much of Tiger because he's expending a crap load of energy on defense and because he's smaller and not as strong as everyone else, which impacts his offense. So that's what I would have liked to have seen. And I'm telling you, and this is where I, I'm where my expectations are. They can't they can't do this again next. You cannot expect Tiger Campbell again to pay play 30 minutes a game and it's um you know Jules Bernard who's who's backing him up. Um unless Jules Bernard like he would have to become such a different player this offseason. Like such a different player. The thing is the one area where he is weakest is the hardest area to like get a lot better which is yeah. just basketball IQ. Yeah. And, and I mean, Jules Bernard also, uh, when he's in at point guard, well, he's, he's bringing the ball up as the point guard. And so he's executing the offense, but he's not matching up against the opposing point guards. And there's so much switching going on, it's hard to tell. But usually then there's also David Singleton, who's matching up against... The, there, there isn't a guy when Jules Bernard is playing the backup point guard. There isn't a guy to match up against the opposing point guard defensively. No. So this would really be a good thing. Um, and I got to tell you, they they're making it a bit hard on themselves that they they didn't find a 2021 point guard. And again, I, I'm it's we're giving you all. I'm not saying they did something wrong because it was a unique situation i'll i'll just say right now if there wasn't a pandemic and they were able to go out i think they'd have a 2021 point guard um i think i honestly i think they would have seen kj simpson and go oh damn okay (laughs) oh we'll take him he's athletic and he can guard and he's tough and uh we'll take him or there would have been other guys who emerged um so it's hard it's hard to like really say this is a a real strong criticism, but I think they need to fix this through the transfer portal by, by next season. That, and as we said, a post player. Yeah. Um, I have friends calling me up. Guys who, like literally my roommate from UCLA called me up this morning and said, hey, so why, why, are, why, aren't, why aren't Cody Riley and Jalen Hill not coming back next year? Yeah. <laughs> and... You know, I you can't ex- I, I can't you can't get into details about it um, because I just don't feel comfortable doing it. But they're just not. The feeling is that they won't be there. It's it going to school at UCLA is tough for them. Um, maybe we'll be surprised and they'll come back. But with Mac Etienne as a freshman sophomore, if they get a post player who can give them ten and eight a game. I think they're fine. Um, yeah, but if, I mean that's post. yeah, but that's a lot. I mean that is a lot to ask. The, the, honestly, I mean if they can, that's great, um, and we'll see what they do on the transfer market. Um, but uh, if there was any way in hell of getting Jalen Hill back, that's your best bet. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I who knows? Um, but yeah, I mean looking at this at this roster, I mean, if I'm, if I'm looking for one thing that I would like to see better next year, how much would this team be improved if Tiger Campbell, when he is given a high screen and some dude for the millionth time did Lex to go under that screen, he can bang home a three from up top. 
Tiger Campbell, your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to take 500 threes in exactly that that situation every day this offseason. That is, that is a big, big thing. And what you said is we've seen him improve in the offseason. Yeah, he, can, he, put, he put in the work. Clearly did. Clearly did. Um, and now it's just, okay, move that range out a little bit. Because he doesn't need to be great but he needs to be respected from that distance. It'll make him so much better on the drive if defenders actually have to respect him shooting a three. So right now he's like a 25% three-point shooter. He's really, really bad. He needs to be just kind of bad. If he can get that even up to like 31 or 32%, that would be fine. I don't think, I think expecting much more beyond that. I mean, his shot, I don't think it looks hideous, but he does kind of shoot two-handed. Um, and... I, I don't know. Maybe he needs some shot mechanic reform and then just, okay, now you're going to take 500 of these like this um, and just work with a shooting coach offseason. But something's got to give there because he cannot continue to hit 24% and and the, the offense is going to get even worse. The, um, the difference the difference with him just shooting 33%. Oh, my God. It would be amazing. Um, uh, because there's so... There's so... Basketball is so interwoven in so many different ways. And, and and that's what's tough about coaching is trying to anticipate how all of this, keep using this word, dynamic works. But if he can just be a little bit more of a threat, um, not only does it open up his ability to take people off the dribble, it will open up just his defender is now, is now sagging off him. Yeah. Right? They don't rotate to him. When the ball's kicked out to him from beyond the three – uh, he he gets an open look quite often, right? If you've got to throw one more body out there or his defender has to take a couple of steps out more than he is, that you have to honor that, the difference that makes with feeding the post, with, guy, with wings being able to drive, being able to pass, it just, it's amazing what it, would, what it could do. So, yeah, and... I'm not going to put it past him. I bet that's not too much of something to bite off, that he can go, what is he shooting right now? From three? Uh, he, he was a 24.6% shooter from three this year. I mean, is it really, do you think it's that tough to envision him shooting 33%? I think, it's, I think it's hard to go from like 35 to like 38. I don't think it's that hard to go from 20. Because 24 is like, oh, wow. Shit's way broken. Like, it's not good. Um, going from that to, like, 30, I think it's just a matter of, like, fixing whatever's wrong with your shot, um, which is usually something, like, basic and mechanical. Um, so I don't think that is hard. I think getting into, like, the really good shooting territory is tough. But the thing is, he's not a horrible free-throw shooter, which is usually a good indication that you should be able to learn how to hit threes. Um, so... I don't know. I'm pulling for him. I hope he figures it out because I do think he gets way too much hate for things that are like um, not totally under his control. But one that is is how he shoots those threes. So and the other pick up the percentage, buddy. Like what we said. I mean, he's playing thirty something. He plays the most minutes on the team. He's playing thirty four minutes, and he's a small, slight guy. Um, Small, slight guy. That is a lot of minutes for his body. Right. The point that Greg Hicks made too, which is a big point. Athletes expend, really good athletes, high-end effort, uh, high-end athletes expend so much less energy doing what non-athletes 
are attempting to do and probably fail doing it. I, I mean, he's expending so much energy trying to stay up because of his size. You'd get him playing 28 minutes. Wow, those four extra minutes a, a game on the bench will improve so much for him. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah, no, he needs a real backup point guard. Um, yeah. So we'll see if one can be developed or gotten, but he definitely needs one. Yeah. All right. So we, I think we've done really well <laughs> breaking this all down, Dave, because, I mean, the takeaway here should be, I think you said it best. You should try attempt it again because I'm lost. But this, it's a, it was a challenging year given the players that Mick Cronin had. Yeah, it's a, a lot of challenging roles. A lot of a lot of guys who have to fit together right. And if you're not convinced he did that, you know, perfectly, well, I think you can join the club that probably includes Mick. Um, and I'm in that club, but I think I, I think you can you can be in that club that says, oh, maybe he didn't do the best job of, of fitting all these pieces together, and also acknowledge that was a truly hard ask this year. Um, yeah, especially once Chris Smith went down. Um, because okay, Chris Smith goes down. You have nobody on this team who has ever created their own their own shot besides Jules Bernard, who um, comes from the Prince, who at least prior to this year comes from the Prince Ali school of creating your own shot, which means creating a lot of bad shots. Um, so what are you going to do? You got to think about Juzang, right? Because he's the one that you know you've seen him in practice, just nailing jumpers from everywhere. You're like, okay, he's the guy, and then I'm sure he's thinking, okay, is that going to affect chemistry? And it might, but when you're doing that calculus, you might say, well, it might be worth it because he might win us some games that otherwise we're not going to have a chance in hell of winning. Um, and look, that's that's a complicated calculus. That's not easy. Um, and, you know, I think there are, there are lots of, um, you know, valid arguments on all sides. Uh, there's one other point I think is should be made. And I brought it up in the forum. Um, Cronin chose not to run off players. Um, he, he, he thought it was better in the long run not to come in, run off existing players and, and bring in other guys. Uh, again, you can, we could discuss the pros and cons of it. Uh, I, I don't think he was personally comfortable doing it anyway, but I, I think he made the long-term decision that it just wasn't a good look. That he would come in and immediately just say, "You got, you're gone, you're gone, you're gone." Um, he was looking at it more from a longer term overview that I'm, I'm not going to do what maybe I could get, you know, negative recruited for or or send a bad message for. I'm going to do what's right right now, and that will that will serve me in the long run. Plus, here's the thing: these were good kids. It wasn't like you're running off kids that are chemistry killers or uh, didn't work hard or bad students. They were good kids. You would have been running off good kids. That's there's just something that there's something wrong right there doing that. So I think from that standpoint, we're talking about the talent on the team. You got to give them a little bit of a honeymoon at least these two years. But I think I think he's done right by those guys by now and I think next year I think it's valid to expect that there's not let's say not talent for a final four team but talent to make the sweet 16 next year like you would look at the team and say 
if they play up to their capability, um, that, that's a, that should be a Sweet 16 team next year. Um, so that's, that's where the expectations should be, I, I think, for next year. Now, obviously, there's some personnel things, challenges to be done. If they lose both Jalen Hill and Cody Riley, dang, they got to find, like you said, to find a 10-8 post player, that's a big ass, ask and a big ass that they're going to have to find. Yeah, huge ass. <laughs> that was good. And, and that backup point guard, I think, would be key. Um, yeah. If they do that, given the talent they have returning, uh, who are all a year older, now they're starting to become seniors. And what Mick Cronin says about seniors is, is not just coach speak. That is so true. We've seen it over the years. So many guys who really come into their own and really command the floor by the time they're seniors in basketball. Um, so that's all valid. Plus Peyton Watson. Uh, I think they have a chance, but getting getting a solid post player who can give you 27 starter-level UCLA minutes, can play good defense, uh, be a rim protector, along with a backup point guard, there it is. That's, that's what they need to do. Yep. All right. Good stuff. Good stuff. Beautiful. Beautiful podcast. Beautiful. Loved it. Yeah, I think so. All right. Well, for Tracy Pearson, I'm David Woods, Burn Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and we will talk to you again next time. We're so close. It's a few weeks. Everyone's going to get the shot, so stay safe. Stay vigilant. Stay, stay safe. Woo!